Awesome, awesome. Well, welcome again to Palm City Church. Uh, I want to say a big hello to those watching on YouTube. As a matter of fact, if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, I would encourage you to do that. We try to post this message and any content that could potentially bring you encouragement and hope between your week. How many know 70 minutes one day a week ain't enough? I don't know if you're facing the kind of things I'm facing on a daily basis, but we need more consistent encouragement, and YouTube posting some content there is one of our ways that we try to pipeline that, so we would invite you to do that. But come on, those in the room, why don't we put our hands together and say a big hello to everybody watching online today. We're glad you're here. Now be a little facetious and tell them it's better in the room, though. You should be in the room, okay? You can't get this online, just saying. But uh, we are glad that you're here, and today I am super excited, what's new, right? But I am excited to start a brand new series we're calling Uncompromised. Yeah, 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 Uncompromised. I'm real fired up. And the, here's the thesis. Um, how do we live a godly life in an ungodly culture? I believe that's a question most of us grapple with. I believe it's, a, it, it's an area we're trying to navigate to the best of our ability. We're looking to God's word. We're trying to do it the right way, not the wrong way. We really want to honor God, live by convictions, but we live in a culture that's not living for God, let's face it. And that's not too new, uh, but I would say in the last several years, it's not getting better, okay? Now, here's the good news. As the world grows darker and darker, and we, the body of Christ, are considered in Scripture the light of the world. How many know light shines the best in darkness? And so we don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid. But we do need to be equipped. We do need to have knowledge of how we live in a culture like this. I believe many Christians want to do it. They just don't know how. And I don't have the corner market on knowing how, but I know God's word does. Anybody in the house today love that God's word is perfect, relevant for all seasons and all generations? So we decided let's take a few weeks right here on the heels of a Holy Spirit series. Okay, God's filled you with the Holy Spirit. Praise God. But you can't bury your head in the sand like a flamingo. No, we got to be in the world just not of it. So let's look at the book of Daniel, one of the Old Testament books of your Bible, and let's see what the Bible has to say uh, about how Daniel did it. I believe Daniel did it very well, that, that he lived in what was known as Babylon. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But he lived in this ungodly culture, and he did it for like 70 years, which tells us a couple of things. Okay, it is doable, number one. And number two, since it's doable, we now have the responsibility of doing it. Let me, let me set up the book of Daniel for you a little bit if you're new to the Bible, or maybe you're not, but you just need a refresher like me sometimes. And that is the book, your, your Bible is broken up into two testaments or two covenants. The old covenant before Christ paid for our sins uh, once for all. That's good news. We're new covenant believers. But, but, but before Jesus was on earth, we had the old covenant. And in the Old Covenant, the Bible is broken down not in chronological order, okay? So if you're ever reading something and you're like, wait, I'm like eight chapters later, this happened again. How did that happen after that happened before? Well, it's not in chronological order. The Old Testament is actually laid out like this. The first five books are the Pentateuch or the, the Mosaic Law. They are the first five books of the Bible. Then you get into the historical books of the Bible. Then you kind of enter into the poetic books, the Psalm, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those types of books. And then the Old Testament concludes with what are known as the prophetic 
books. And within the prophetic books are major and minor prophets, not because one was better than the other or, or cooler. It's simply they're major and minor based on the length of the Bible or the book of the Bible itself. Make sense, everybody? So that, that's, that's the book of Daniel. Now, let me catch you up for just a moment on where we are in the whole grand scheme of God's plan in this book. You know the Israelites were God's chosen people, that God loved them so much he brought them out of, of Egypt. Okay, he set them free from slavery, but they still had a little slavery on the inside, a little Egypt on the inside of them. So he took them to the promised land, but that wasn't an overnight journey. Probably could have been a lot shorter, but come on, they're, they're a little prideful. They, they got a little bit of little, little problem obeying God, not like any of us or anything, but you know, they had some issues. They weren't quite as uh, submissive to God's plans as we are today, but they had a little bit of problems, so they wandered for a long time. They end up in the promised land, and God pours out his blessing on them for like 400 years. But over the course of time, they begin to kind of reject God. How many know when things are good, sometimes you put God on the shelf until things are bad? Uh, watch them toes. I'm coming for them a little today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they did that 400 years of blessing, and then God brought in what's known as the age of judges. And then we get into the, 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 the season of human kings. Of course, you had Saul, the first king followed by David, and then ultimately Solomon. You got the, the kings going on. They end up in civil war. So, so much is going on in that country. They end up in a civil war, and the 12 tribes of Israel are split up into two kingdoms, the north kingdom being the first 10 tribes. They kind of go north. They take the majority. And then the southern kingdom have uh, two tribes, one being Judah, and they kind of land there. That's where Daniel was raised in, in that arena. Now, while he was there, the North Kingdom stayed independent, roughly, they believe, somewhere around 280 years. The Southern Kingdom stayed independent a little bit longer, somewhere around 320 years. Uh, but along the way, this dude named King Nebuchadnezzar, come on, say that, King Nebuchadnezzar, not a good dude, but a pretty cool name. Uh, he comes and like rolls up, and he's trying to besiege him. He's trying to overtake him. He, he, he's, try, he's trying to invade them. He does invade them. He actually tries three times over the course of 20 years. And on the final time, the third time, he's actually successful. But, but it, after that third time, when he, when he actually overtakes and conquers the southern kingdom, his dad back home passes away. And now he's worried that the, the throne's going to skip him. You know, somebody's going to raise up and try to steal the throne. So he actually leaves that southern kingdom, and he's like, I got to get back home to secure the throne. On his way home, he says, but I'm going to take a few things with me. He takes all the things for God's temple back with him to Babylon, but he also takes some Hebrew boys. So he says, I want, I want the best of the best. I'm going to bring them with me, and I'm going to do some things in their life and, and kind of get them out of what they've grown accustomed to and expose them to a completely different type of culture and world. Hence the reason I think this book is important for us today. As we look at it, uh, I want to read you a few verses out of the first chapter of Daniel. I'll put it on the screen for you note takers, but just make reference to it and follow along as we read through this first chapter. Are you with me? Say yeah. yeah. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's where we picked up. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. This is all the stuff that he, he was like, peace out, I'm taking all this gold, I'm taking all this stuff. 
These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, remember that name, chief of his court officials to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude in every kind of learning, well-informed. This kind of sounds like me. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. You ain't got to laugh that hard, okay? Come on. Handsome, showing aptitude in every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Scripture tells us, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, that southern kingdom, Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So I want to read those, and you can see some things in here that I underlined for us today. But I believe it gives us a picture of how we navigate an ungodly culture in a godly way. Does anybody want to look at it with me? Okay, we're reading scripture today, baby. We're getting in the weeds. Let's go. It's going to be fun. Hang on. Take some notes. I believe God's going to speak to you. Now, many of us want to figure out how to do that. Obviously, this group that's in the room today is hungry to know more of God and to experience not just a church, but experience a relationship with God through Christ, and we commend you on that. But, but it's, it's how do we do it? That, that's where, okay, I want to do it, but I don't know how. And in today's world, it would seem that tolerance is the way to just kind of take it on the cheek and just, you know, just let things, just be a, a, a placemat, let people walk on you, let, right? And I'm not saying that we don't turn the other cheek and that we live a very gracious, meek life. We do. We live in all godliness, quietful and peaceful. Yes, we do. But here, how many know that tolerance, although it's maybe good in nature, a lot of times will lead to compromise to where we end up conceding our convictions, so, so with a heart to be loving, what we end up doing is we become enabling and we don't really influence them. We become confused ourselves and we're, and we're not tolerant. We just kind of get things out of whack and nobody knows what to do, okay? And so I believe that we can look at scripture today and see Daniel's life and how he did it because here's the truth. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace, and we got to think about this, not for our own lives, but for our kids' life and our grandkids' life. Because God, God is a generational God. He wants to bless us to the thousandth generation. Okay, he's got blessing for our lives. But we got to understand this, not only to be able to navigate it ourselves until we go to heaven. Praise God for heaven. But, but we ain't in heaven yet. So we got to figure out earth. I believe God is looking today for some men and William that would be Daniels in the culture. That looking for some men and women that would have that nature, as the Bible said. Daniel had exceptional qualities. And they would do some things different, not to be noticed, but they would, they would stand firm, stand up, stand out, and point people in a better way. He's looking for a group of people that would be more concerned with their conviction of pleasing God than their fear of pleasing man. This is what God's looking for, and this is why we have the first series on the book of Daniel. Uncompromised. The first thing I see 
that they did when we look at their lives and how Daniel navigated it is physical isolation. So these boys, were, they were born and raised in this, this kingdom. They were under God's law. They, they had rabbis. They, had, they were insulated with authority and, and mentors and people that would love them and wanted the best. There was unity and belief and all these things. The first thing that happened is, is King Nebuchadnezzar took them out of what was familiar and brought them to a new experience. He, he brought them to Babylonia, which was actually interesting because it wasn't like a cutthroat type of kingdom. The empire before Babylon was the Assyrians. They would, they would cut your head off, bro. They would just come at you. They were radical. They were, they were crazy. You know, they, they, were, they would skin you and then, and then use your, your hide as wallpapers in their house. That, they were, they were kind of gangster, you know what I'm saying? Um, not cool. The Babylonians, their approach was completely different. They used pleasure to lure you away. They, they play to your appetites. They play to your flesh to get you to not be forced into it, but they went for your desire and tried to get you to like, the, the you know, instead of pleasing God, just kind of pleasing your flesh. So they first isolated these boys. Now, how that parlays to us today is not only have we had a, a pandemic that we've all walked through that physically took us out of churches, but so many times we're not staying connected in church. We're not... Uh, connected to God's word. We're isolating ourselves from scripture. The, the foundation of, of us knowing how to navigate life. We're isolating ourselves from community. Oh, we're around a lot of people. We, we let them know what we had for lunch, but nobody really knows what's going on in our heart. That, that, we're, that, we're, that we're physically around people, but we're also physically isolated from them. I want to encourage you, church, you got to fight through this. This is a part of culture today that's trying to get us separated. There's a divisive spirit kind of looming through the land. It's, it's shown itself multiple times in different ways. Same tactic, different methods over the last few years. And I believe we got to be aware of it. That there's, there's, there's something trying to divide us because the Bible says a house divided cannot stand. Now this is very risky for a new church to say this, but I'm going to say it because I love you and you need the truth. You don't need to hear what you need to hear or what you think you need to hear. You need to hear what we all need to hear, and that is there are six days a week your kids can play sports. Ooh, let the Lord's Day be the Lord's Day. They have a 0.0296% chance of ever becoming a professional athlete, but they got a 100% chance they're going to live in a Babylonian culture, and they've got a 100% chance they're going to face Jesus Christ one day, and they got to know how to live. They got to know how to live. Now, I got kids all over the city. We're going to soccer. We're going to cheer. I'm doing it all, but it ain't happening on God's day. I'm keeping that for God. He's worthy of it all, and I'm not going to create more physical isolation in my life or their life when enough is already trying to do that, like we see in the life of Daniel. The second thing we see here is mental indoctrination. Mental indoctrination. So they got them out of what they knew and they brought them into this new culture. But then the Bible says in verse 4 of chapter 1, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. How many know there's, there's an enemy trying to capture the hearts and minds of this next generation? Yeah. They're, they're trying to, to, to come at them and to skew their way of thinking and train them young so that when they get older, they've now embraced what we kind of tolerated. It's what I said earlier. 
Now, I'm not against education. I love our teachers. Shout out. We're praying for every Pasco County school teacher and leader and superintendent right now. We believe in you. We have your back. We'll serve you in any way possible. But parents, I am telling you that the teacher in your classroom is not your biggest educator in your household. It is you. That we have to train our children in the way they should go. And when they get older, they will not depart. That we have to train them. Like the Bible says, that money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. The same with education in and of itself. If it's for knowledge increasing, it's great. But when it gets into indoctrinating and trying to change the way our children should think and have labels on their life that God never placed, that's when it begins to be evil. And we've got to watch mental indoctrination over our children like never before. I I, I want to read you this quote from a guy named Joseph Gables. It says, tell a lie long enough and keep repeating it. And eventually, everyone will believe it. Now, this brother was Hitler's marketing director. Come on, think about that. They would would have called it propaganda minister. That's a marketing director. I mean, he's just outputting publication. And this is what he said. That if we just feed people, not the truth, but just some form of the truth, a twisted version of it, most of them won't do the research to find out themselves, and they will end up believing a lie. And when you have a generation that believes things that are not true about their life, they create chaos and they create confusion and they get into things that they didn't want to be in. I was one of them. The enemy got a lie into my heart when I was young and I, I gave him, I, I empowered it by believing it. And it sent me down a path God never intended. Now here's what we need to be encouraged. The good news of Jesus Christ is there is redemption and restoration and reconciliation that God can put back something broken and he can mend it. God can take something that is just in disarray and he can redeem it. He's a great God. So if that's you today, you've gone on an own path, you need to know you're not too far gone for God to reach out in one moment and bring you back and put your feet on solid ground, place you in a spacious place and that you can live the best life you ever imagined. You need to know that. But we got to be aware of this physical isolation and this mental indoctrination. The third one I see here is identity alteration. Verse 7 says this, the chief official gave them new names. Now in the Hebrew culture, and you can see the rest of the verse there, but in the Hebrew culture, names were very important. So sometimes we name a name because we like it. And that's cool. Do you? That's cool. But in, the, in, the, in these days, man, they, they had big time meaning. They named you based on what the meaning of that name was. But it was also very normal once you take slaves in to, as a sign of ownership to change their name. So that was kind of customary in the day and time was. But this was a mockery of their Jewish identity. This was putting a label on them and getting to think different about themselves because to a Hebrew boy, their name was everything. It was almost vision for their life. It was a pathway in which they should walk and even spoke prophetically to some of the things maybe they would accomplish. But then King Nebuchadnezzar gave them satanic names. And and here they are. I want to show them to you. First was Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge. So it's awesome. It's not like, oh, God's my judge. It's not God is my judge. He's the only one on the throne. When they changed his name to Belteshazzar, it meant lady, protect the king. So they flipped it to a different gender. Said, you ain't even a boy, you're a girl. And they said, lady, protect the king. They redefined sexuality over Daniel. Hananiah was, Yahweh has been gracious. Oh, God is a good God, not an angry God. They changed his name to Shadrach, which says, I'm fearful of God. 
So, so it went from my God is a God that I can approach. My God is a God that I can come when I make a mistake on Saturday night and I can still go to church. That's my God. And they changed the script and made them believe that, no, 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 he's a fearful God. And not in a good way. Not like a reverent fear, but you should stay away because he is not on your side. They redefined spirituality. Mishael was a, a name that meant who is what God is. In other words, it was just a confidence. Like who is, who is like my God? Who no, nobody, he's matchless, he's incomparable in power. Who is like my God? To Meshach, which means I'm despised, contempted, contemptible, and humiliated. It went from confidence to cowardice. It redefined emotions. Azariah was Yahweh has helped. And his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. They redefined his future. That God's not going to help you. You're going to be a slave to this issue and a slave to culture the rest of your life. And here's what I know in a room like this is many of us have accepted a label and a name from the enemy that God never wanted to put on your life. Some of you have been through a divorce and so you see yourself as divorced. Some of you have been through bankruptcy and so you see yourself as a failure. Maybe it's addiction so you call yourself an addict. Maybe you've made some wrong choices and so you see yourself as promiscuous. Maybe it's unholy appetites and so you just labeled yourself rejected or abandoned, or, but that's not God. God sees you as child of the Most High God, son and daughter of a king, purposed, uh, empowered to live a life that would change the world if you would ever connect. We've got to take the names of culture off of us and allow God to relabel us as he always intended. We're living in a generation where you will live up to the name you assign yourself. It's almost a prophetic leading that, that, that you will meet the script and you will write the narrative to whatever label you have on yourself. Purpose, I believe, is our identity in motion. And that's why here at our church, we try to create a pathway to put some new names, some God names, some original names, some, some Yahweh names back on people's life by helping them understand their purpose in God's kingdom. Like, how did God design you and let design define? I mean, he's God. If he's God, he gets to be God. He gets to say who you are and what you can accomplish and what are the plans and purposes he has for your life more than anyone else. He's God. It's called the growth track here. I would encourage you. We're going to start it back next week. If you don't know what your purpose is, if you don't know what right labels that God has for you in your life, you need to come. We'll help you. We don't give them to you. God's already given them to you. We just pull the scales back from your eyes so that you can see what God has already done and and reveal it to you. And I would invite a lot of you to, to be a part of that next week. The last one here is principle manipulation. Here, here, here's, here's what Asphanas did. He did something different. I tried to, I, I was rhyming everybody, so I was, I was, I was working on these, and, and it, it was almost like conviction manipulation, or maybe it's your standard manipulation. But, but I, I landed on principle manipulation that that the enemy doesn't only want to isolate you and he doesn't only want to change your identity and he doesn't only want to indoctrinate you with some lies and some false truths from some false gods, but he also wants to get you into, into jeopardizing your principles and your values. Here's what they did. The Bible says he did something else. He assigned them a portion of the king's table, which was a full-scale assault on these Jewish young men. They had dietary restrictions in the Mosaic law. So he came at them and appealed to their flesh and said, oh, I'm gonna give you that good wine. We eating filet mignon every night. It's gonna be good. 
But I love the heart of Daniel. What did Daniel do? We could end the message right here, but I've got a little bit more for you if you're still interested. In verse 8, here's what the Bible says. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in any way. I love that they were trying to lure him to the forbidden. They were trying to appeal to his flesh. But Daniel had a personal resolution in his heart that God, even though I'm in a culture I don't understand, is going to help me. But I love his approach. He, did, he didn't combat them with anger and like, no, you're going to hell. You know, he wasn't like mad Daniel. He was still able to love well and live godly even though he stood for truth. And this is one of the best parts of the whole book is in his approach, in how he did it. So many of us are being attacked to compromise our standards. But I think you'll see here in verse 9, Aspenaz said, now God has caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. So Daniel said, hey, do, do you mind? This is not really, can I have your permission? Now, old Aspenaz was like, they're going to cut my head off if they find out I'm giving you vegetables and water over here. But, but, but God calls Aspenaz to show Daniel some favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Let's skip down to verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Very important. Test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of young men who eat the royal food and and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. How many know God will allow your faith to be tested? Why? Because a faith tested is a faith trusted. God wants to build your character. So don't just associate some hardship and some trials and some tribulations as God is not on your side and God has forgotten you. No, he may let you go through a little bit so that you will grow through a lot. He wants to test your face so that you can be trusted and that he can do what he wants to in your life. But we have to go through the test first. What's interesting is they said, test me for 10 days. In Scripture, the number 10 is a sign of testing. It's why we have 10 commandments. It, it, there were 10 days after Jesus ascended that the disciples stayed in the upper room before Pentecost. There's 10 days of testing in Revelation with the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2. Read about that. Of course, we give a tenth of our income as a sign of testing. Malachi 3.10, the Bible says, when we tithe, he says, you can test me in this. God says, test, test me and, and watch that I don't pour out a blessing so great you can't contain. Ten is a sign of testing all throughout Scripture. And I want to pass the test. But Daniel and them said, test us in this. The last thing I see that we embrace and have to, have to deal with is constant confrontation. I, I, we're confronted on Facebook. We're confronted at every turn. And, and really when you see this, there's two groups. You, you see the angry, dogmatic, just, I'm going to fight. I'm here to win an argument. There's no internal personal resolve. It's I'm creating enemies. But we can't win our enemies, so we can't have that approach of trying to blow everybody up. 
But we also can't be deluded in our truth and just waffle and be tossed around. Well, maybe I'm... Right? Because that doesn't help anybody and it mainly doesn't even help us understand what we believe. That, that to live uncompromised, we have to know how to respond. And I believe the Bible tells us exactly how we should do it. We look at the life of Daniel, but let's look to our Lord and Savior, the life of Jesus. In John 1, the Bible says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. You should say amen right there. That's really good news. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace or truth? Nope. Now, all of us have a bent towards one of these. All of us are maybe a little bit better at one of them. Some of us know how to give them the truth. The truth will set you free, and I'm here to deliver it. But, but truth can, you know, alone is, is not the full package. Some of us are really good at grace. We're just filled with mercy. And like, you know, we just give people not what they deserve, but we just kind of let them off the hook. And we should do that too, but not at the expense of truth. We, like Jesus, being made in his image, should be full of truth and grace. What is truth? Truth is God's standard. What is grace? Grace is God's favor. God's standard is truth. John 17 says this, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. God's word is not a book of opinions or suggestions. They are the perfect, infallible commands of God that we shouldn't just consider. We should submit our lives to willingly and often. I don't know about you. I kind of got to do it daily because today, oh, it's great. But if I leave tomorrow to chance, chances are I'm going to do my own thing and go my own way. That we've got to submit ourselves to God's truth, which is his standard. But we also need God's grace, which is God's favor. Ephesians 2, 8 tells us God saved you by his grace when you believed. In other words, you didn't deserve it. That God favored you and loved you and gave you that which you did not deserve. Okay? So, so we need, like, we like grace when we're receiving it. But we don't like it when people we don't like get it. And, and we got to get out of that. We got to be full of truth and grace. Here, here's the problem. Without truth, we become corrupt. We just do whatever we want, go wherever we want, say whatever we want, respond however we want in the moment, and it creates corruption not only in our heart, but then nobody wants our faith because we're really mean. Have you ever met a mean Christian? We shouldn't be mean Christians. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, not the bad news, not the average news. No, we have good news. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Today is the day of salvation. I will rejoice and be glad in it, that we're happy people. That's why one of our values at church is fun, is our expression. I don't think church should be endured. I think it should be enjoyed. I was glad when they said unto me, let me go to the house of the Lord. We should, we should serve the Lord with gladness. So we, so we can't just be truth because it'll leave us corrupt. But without grace, we're condemned. None of us have a chance without what Jesus has done for us. So we can't get the big head and think we're all that in a bag of chips. Y'all don't know about that. That was from the 90s. We can't, we can't be like that. we we got to stay humble and full of grace. The best way to do it is, is to remember all that God has forgiven you from and realize you'll never have to forgive someone else more than God's forgiven you. That, that without truth, I'm corrupt. But without grace, I'm condemned. Without truth, we become worldly. And if we're like the world, we have nothing to offer the world. 
We've we got to be set apart, the Bible says. We've got to be different. We've got to have some exceptional qualities like Daniel did, stuff that makes us stand out in a Babylon culture, not for our glory, but they would see something in us that they don't currently have in their own life, and they would, through the chaos and the fear and the problems and the anxiety, they would go, look, you're real authentic, but it seems like you've got a little bit of joy hitting your life in a way that I don't. What is that? Tell me more. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. That's our opportunity. So we can't become worldly, but without grace, we become judgmental. We start living our life based on someone else's problems. In other words, we have our own sin, but to make myself feel better because I'm judgmental, I look at you and go, well, at least I'm not them. Oh, right? We're, we're great judges of someone else's sin and attorneys for our own. We, we got to be full of truth and grace. Here's what Mother Teresa said. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. Let us not be a judgmental group. There is one judge, God, our judge, and the rest of us are here to receive the free gift of salvation from him and to be him for as many of them as God allows us to influence and impact. That, that we're not judgmental. No, no, no. We're, we're, we're not just all truth. No, 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 because we don't want to be corrupt. We, we need the parameters and the restraints God has placed in our life, the truth of his word and the favor of his son to guide us into all that God has for us. Because here's the truth, no pun intended, that truth alone is harsh, but grace alone is harmful. But truth and grace, it's healthy. It, it, it's having both. And I don't know what your bent is. I know that if you're like me, you probably have a little bit of a bent towards one. That's okay, God made you that way. You don't have to change it but you have to give thought and, and prayer and the word and let some people in your life that's going to help you with the other side of the coin because they're two wings of the same bird. And unless you want to be a bird that goes in circles, you need both wings. You need to be filled with truth and grace. Grace invites us to be free, but it is truth that sets us free. Grace extends the invitation to come as you are. That's why we say belong before believe. Because we don't want people to think there's a prerequisite to getting in this room and worshiping God. No, you can belong regardless of what you believe because we know God's so good. If you get in this room, he's going to touch your heart in such a way that something changes, something connects, and God begins to do something in your life. And we know belief is inevitable. It's coming. God's going to knock on the door of your heart, and we encourage you to open it. It's grace that invites us to be free. But it's the truth that actually sets us free. Here's the thing I want us to think as we land this first installment and go on this four-week journey of the book of Daniel. And it's, and it's this, that, that we can't change the truth, but we do have the opportunity to let the truth change us. I, I'm inviting you as I've invited myself over the past two weeks of, as I've been studying, Lord, whatever's in me, Psalm 139, Lord, search me and know me. Point out any offensive way within me and then lead me into the path of everlasting life. Did you know that's what God wants to do in your life? That he doesn't want to just point you out in your sin and call you a filthy dog, but he just in gentleness wants to put his finger on an area that's not best for you, but then in love show you the best pathway of life. It's what he did with the woman caught in adultery. In the Bible, uh, and we won't go through the scripture, but in the Bible, there was a woman caught in the act of adultery by some religious people. Now, it begs the question, what were them brothers doing where the act was happening? 
okay? Maybe they was a little judgmental. Maybe they was up in some stuff they shouldn't be in. That's another message. But the Bible says they caught her in the act of adultery. And they said Jesus. They were always trying to trap Jesus and make him follow the Mosaic law. They said, you know what the law says. We got to stone her. We got to kill her for this, this crime that she's committed. And the Bible says Jesus got down in the sand. And we don't know what he wrote, but he began to draw some things in the sand. Perhaps he was listing out their sins. Sarah, Maggie, and just calling them out. And the Bible says those religious leaders one by one just kind of like, all right, we're good, we're good. They faded away. But then he addressed the woman who was caught. It's not like she had a thought about it. No, she had committed the sin, which she knew she could not undo. She could not go back and change what had already happened. And Jesus, being full of truth and grace, he looked at her. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? I would imagine she looked around thinking they're still there, but they were all gone. And he gave her grace. He said, neither do I condemn you. But then he gave her truth. And he said, go and leave your life of sin. This is the God we serve. One who's full of grace and truth. That today, if you're caught in a mess, today, if you've been going down a path that you know in this moment, because God's already convicted your heart, that's not best for you, don't see the Lord saying, I'm done with you. Strike three, you're out. I want you to see the Lord as the Bible shows who Jesus was saying, hey, where's your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. But listen, we got to lead this type of life because I got better for you. And, and, and it's what you would want if you knew what I knew, but you gotta trust me. Obviously in this moment you know this isn't good, but don't let the moment itself create the repentance. Realize that, that there's gonna be another opportunity for temptation down the road, but if you leave a life, live a life of truth and grace, you're gonna be able to make it. So church, look at me. I, I want us to esteem God's word. I want us to hold in the highest regard the Word of God and esteem God's truth. But we also have to exude God's grace. This is the life God is calling us to. To be uncompromising on the standard of God's Word, but to live a life that's full of grace. Where at times, even if we have them, hook, line, and sinker, we just let them off. Instead of ripping their lip, we love their heart and try to point them in a way that we've experienced ourselves. Amen, everybody? Amen. I want us to go back into a time of worship and then I'll close as we normally do. But I, but I want us to, again, go ahead and stand on your feet in this room. And I, I just think on this inaugural day of this new series, we need another moment to where we just say, you're worthy of it all. To where together we say, look, you know, nobody else loves me like Jesus loves me. Nobody else cares for your life like Jesus cares for your life. Nobody else will give you as many chances as God will. That today he is saying, I love you despite what you've done. In spite of who the world says you have been. That right now in worship, I'm believing in my mind that, that God's going to take off some labels. That as you worship, God's going to begin to set you free. He's going to begin to lift that anxiety and take away that burden. Maybe that sin that you've never been able to overcome, today's the day in Jesus' name. 
He's going to set you free of something you've never been able to set, your, set yourself free of. Come, come on, with open hands and open hearts. I want you just to begin to focus on Jesus, the one who had him caught in the act and said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. He is the one worthy. Come on, sing it. You are worthy of it all. Oh, yeah. You're worthy, Lord. You are worthy of it all. Oh, come on. This ain't about a song. This is about your king. Tell him. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. Oh, give him all the glory. You come on, open your heart to heaven like never before. Worship the real King in Jesus' name. Oh, we're going to live an uncompromised life. We're not bowing to culture. We're bowing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we're not going to be a disciple of culture. We're going to be a disciple of Christ. Come on, sing, you are worthy. Sing it out. All the voices. You are worthy. If you're here today and you need to make a fresh commitment to God, you need, you need to do what the Bible says, and that is receive the grace God has assigned to you through Jesus. I, I would sum it up with one word. It's surrender. It's when you just lay the control of your life at the feet of the one who gave you life. And you take on his nature. And you let him do a fresh work in your heart. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. If that's you today, there's no power in my words. The power comes from your heart meaning it and saying it straight to God. You don't need a priest. You're a new covenant believer. You can approach God. He wants to hear your voice. If that's you today, pray something like this. Jesus, I receive what you did for me on the cross. Forgive me of my sin. Give me a fresh start, a new nature, and a clean heart. Thank you for not condemning me in my sin. And thank you for setting me on a path of truth. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus.